Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you and we are under your word. And as we open to this portion of your word, Lord, that you would uh, speak to us. May we understand a little more, a little deeper about the truth of your word in this passage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, so the title of my message is Encountering Melchizedek. Um, uh, you know, from time to time, uh, we come across some obscure or uh, seemingly irrelevant texts. And we, what we tend to do is kind of, we simply kind of gloss over them. Right? It's like, uh, we don't really, there are a bunch of names, or these are people that don't really, they, they don't seem that important. Right? And so we tend to kind of quickly just read over those passages. And um, actually, today's passage can easily fall into that category. Um, this passage comes after Abram uh, defeating the four kings and then rescuing his nephew Lot. And, um, and after his uh, return from the rescue mission that he just accomplished, Abram was met by two kings in the king's valley. And we see king of Salem, Melchizedek, and the other king, the king of Sodom. Well, Melchizedek, king of Salem, he suddenly appears out of nowhere, right? There was no mention of him before. And just as quickly, he's gone, not to be, uh, not to be encountered again or explained subsequently. Then and then after that, uh, Abram is dealing with the king of Sodom, comes. So when we see this, we see a contrast between Abram's responses to the king of Salem and the king of Sodom. Um, and what we see is the king of Salem, Melchizedek, he brings uh, bread and wine as, as a priestly act and acknowledges uh, that, uh, that it was really God Most High who granted or who gave Abram the victory. So he attributes all his victory to uh, the God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, and he's the one who delivered uh, the adversaries into Abram's hand. On the other hand, king of Sodom, he offers Abram the spoil of the battle. Just take it, take it, right? And um, we see the two different responses by Abram. His response to Melchizedek is positive. Because when Melchizedek offers bread and wine and attributes uh, his victory to the hand of God, God Most High, he recognizes his offer, and then as well as his priesthood, and he accepts bread and wine instead of turning it down, and then he offers a tithe to Melchizedek. In contrast to his dealings with Melchizedek, Abram wanted nothing to do with the wicked king, of Sodom. He will not take the bait. He will not take what he's offering. So at this first glance, it seems like it's just another encounter with kings for Abram. As we have seen right, right uh, the passage right before, we saw a bunch of names that we could not even pronounce, right? And so as we just continue to read uh, in this account, we may say, okay, it's just another encounter that Abram has with Kings, just run-of-the-mill encounter. And in fact, 
Abram has had a few encounters already with Pharaoh and a few other kings. So it seems pretty ordinary encounter to us. But there is more to this passage than meets the eye. And unpacking everything that is in this passage uh, is, is beyond the scope of this message. So we're just going to be focusing on Abram's encounter with Melchizedek. Um, so just a, uh, the warning is uh, today's passages has, uh, or my message has a lot of theologically heavy content. So um, j- just to give, I, I try to like squeeze in some like illustrations, but I just had a hard time uh, doing that. And so just bear with me and stay with me. Um, and it's not the easiest pe- message to digest, but um, you know we really need to take in some solid food for us. And um, so I mean I don't really have any milk for you today. Um, so what is the significance of this passage that seems pretty average? It's just another encounter with a couple kings along the way for Abram. If it is not run of the mill encounter. How is it any different than any other encounter that Abram had with kings? You know, you you may say, Pastor Wojcik, it looks pretty average to me. You know, I mean, who cares that Abram meets this random dude, Melchizedek? Who cares, right? Well, scripture cares. In fact, this was a pretty big deal. So let me just explain. And the first point that I want to bring out to you is the significance of this encounter. Melchizedek was not like any other king. He was a king of Salem. Salem was an ancient name for Jerusalem, and it means the city of peace. The Jerusalem, it means the peace. So it means he was a king of a city of peace. And also his name, it literally means king of righteousness. Melchizedek, it literally means, Melech is in Hebrew word, it means king. And Zedek means righteousness. So Melchizedek, it means king of righteousness. And what's so different about this king, Melchizedek, is that his significance lies in the fact that he was a king and a priest. As such, this king of righteousness is a type of Yes, Jesus Christ. Yeah, you got it, right? So that's what really set him apart from other kings that are mentioned. In ancient times, no one had more influence than a king or a priest. Because a king, as a king, he would rule. And as a priest, if you were a priest, the people would you know, just fall and then they would respect you like crazy because you are the, the person between uh, you and the God or the deity. Right? And so that time, a king or a priest had the most influence on the people. Especially in Israel, if you were a king or a priest, they were, you were a big shot. Right? But you were not both king and priest at the same time. In non-Israelite circles, kingly and priestly duties uh, were often performed by the same individual, but not in Israel. And Melchizedek, as a Canaanite, he was both. He was a king as well as a priest. But not just any kind of priest, but the priest of God Most High. Somehow, he came to know 
the true one and true God. And no doubt that his view of God, God most high God uh, of the Bible, was deficient. He couldn't have known everything about God at this time. But what's important is that, is that he was a king priest of God most high. And that foreshadows Jesus Christ, who is our prophet, who is our priest, and who is our king. Now, stay with me. I know this sounds like, oh, what, what are we talking about? It's like Melchizedek. Well, I mean, it's like a random dude. And what's going on? Just so, so stay with me. So you see, uh, in the Old Testament time, there were three very important offices, anointed and consecrated by God. Some of uh, the offices that were set apart for his special, uh, special purpose. The office of prophet, the office of priest, and the office of king. No other office was dedicated or anointed, but those three that were anointed, that were established by God himself. So they played a crucial role in bringing people to God and God to his people. So in the Old Testament time, you were anointed either to be a king or a priest, but not both. No one had held multiple office at the time. Right? Each office and the function of either a priest, prophet, or king was very different, and the responsibility is so great that no one, no one person can possibly hold more than one office. King David, as great as he was, a man after God's own heart, he was a king, but he was never anointed to be priest or a prophet. Jeremiah, I mean, he wrote the longest book of the Bible, right? Book of Jeremiah. And yet, he was anointed to be a prophet, but he was never called to be a king or a priest. Ezra, what, the, the, what he did was just incredible, and yet he was simply, uh, not simply, but he, he was a priest, but he was never anointed to be a king or a prophet. You see, however, when Jesus Christ came, he became our prophet, he became our priest, and he became our king. All three in one person. And that's what Jesus has done. And oftentimes we say Christ, Christ. I mean, we even sang the song, Christ is enough, right? Obviously, we know that it's not his last name. So then what does this um, honorific term, a title mean? Does anybody know? I mean, do we know? Like, if I were to just, kind of just go to you, like, one by one, and ask you, what does Christ mean? I wonder how many of us can really truly answer that question. Yeah, just please don't say that, oh, that was, that was not his last name. No, it, was, it wasn't. And how can we call him Christ when we don't know what, it, what the, the title even means? When we say Christ is enough, when we sing that, Christ, doesn't that mean Jesus? No. Christ does not mean Jesus, right? Or synonymous term with Jesus. No, it's not. That's not what it means. Do we use the title? Do we call him that just because everyone else is using the term? Is that what we are doing? Or because Christ, it, it sounds more spiritual if you say it in front, instead of saying Jesus. Is that why we use the term Christ? Um... 
Or does it because instead of saying Jesus, if we say, oh, Christ, it sounds more theological. Or so it makes, it makes us look more informed or better educated or, or something like that. Is that why we use the term Christ, right? We say Jesus Christ, but what does that title mean? It means the anointed one or the chosen one, the anointed one, or, uh, or the chosen one. Jesus has been anointed or consecrated. He's been dedicated. He has been chosen by God to serve his purpose. And Jesus, when we say Jesus Christ, is that Jesus the anointed one, Jesus the chosen one, he's anointed to be our prophet. He is anointed to be our priest. And he has, he's been anointed to be our king. And that's what we are saying when we say Christ, Jesus Christ, the anointed one. In a nutshell, it means that what we are saying is that Jesus has been anointed by the Holy oil and the, uh, the Holy Spirit. And he has been chosen and set apart by God to accomplish his purpose from the very beginning. And that's what we are saying. But for what purpose has he been anointed? It is to save those people, once again, in a nutshell, it is to save those people who are called by God to be his people. Right. You know, um, so I, I'm a Presbyterian, right? And um, so I, I subscribe to the teaching uh, of the Westminster Catechism. So the Catechism, it means uh, in the form of like questions and answers, you under come to understand the biblical principles and what the scripture teaches. And so I subscribe to that teaching. And the Westminster Catechism, Shorter Catechism, it answers these questions. And the question is, then how is Christ a prophet? How is Christ a priest? And how is Christ a king? So this is what it's, uh, if you can turn there. Yeah, so how, how is uh, Christ a prophet? The answer, we talk, I just said that Jesus has become our anointed prophet. How is he a prophet? As a prophet, Jesus Christ reveals the will of God to us for our salvation by his word and by his spirit. The how is Jesus Christ our prophet? It says, it means that as a prophet, that Jesus Christ reveals the will of God. And that is the, the office and the function of a prophet reveals the will of God to his people. That in the Old Testament time, time after time, God would send his prophets, his servants, to convey the message, that his will, what he wants his people to do. Repent and turn around, right? Or just many different things. That as a prophet, that uh, Christ revealed the will of God for us. How that he was the will of God. That we would trust in him to find reconciliation and salvation right and how is christ a, a priest the, uh, the westminster catechism continues as a priest christ offered himself up once as a sacrifice for us to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to god and he continually intercedes for us now how is jesus once again a priest as a priest as anointed priest of God, Jesus offered himself up once, once and for all, 
the sacrifice as a sacrifice for us. The place that we should have been, that he offered himself as a sacrifice for us. For what? To satisfy the divine justice. All the sins that we have committed, that now has been, and that the sin has to be dealt with by a holy God. So instead of God pouring out his righteous wrath and judgment upon us, he took our place and he satisfied the justice of the Father, that he has received full brunt of God's wrath right, for all mankind. That's just incredible for all of us. That justice had to be satisfied. And as a priest, that through his death and sacrifice, that he has reconciled us to God. And as a priest, it means that he continually intercedes for us. And how is Christ a king? As a king, Christ brings us under his power, rules and defends us, and restrains and conquers all his and all our enemies. That God, Jesus, when we say Jesus Christ, Jesus the anointed one, he was the anointed king. Just as you know, King Saul, King David, just all the kings, they were anointed right, to be king. That God established them. So how is Christ a king to us? He brings us under his power, under his dominion, under his rules. And also he defends us. He's our advocate against the, 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 the lies and the accusations of the enemy. And also he conquers his enemy as well as our enemy. And that's how he has become our king, anointed king. So, once again, so Melchizedek, Pastor, you just went to, to you know, Jesus. I mean, so what's the relationship again? What's the significance? You see, this king-priest, Melchizedek, is a type of Christ because Melchizedek was a king priest of God Most High and because of the fact that he was a type of our Lord Jesus who is our prophet, priest, and king. So that is the significance, significance of Melchizedek. Now, am I like so preoccupied or hell-bent to make everything in the Old Testament about Jesus Christ, and that I am saying this out of thin air? Am I doing that right now? Well, may I sub submit to you that I'm, that's not what I'm doing here. So Psalm uh, 110 is a Psalm of David, and it's a Messianic Psalm. It's talking about what uh, this uh, Messiah is like and what he will do. And Psalm 110, verse 4 says this, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's kind of cryptic verse, right? As you know, David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this psalm, he talks about you. It's referring to, to the Messiah. Once again, the Messiah is, as you guys know, is the... Uh, the uh, so Christ is the Greek translation of, of Messiah, right? So when we say Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Christ, it's the same thing, right? Messiah is the Hebrew word and Christ is the Greek word. It's the same thing. So the Messiah is, um, is talking about the Messiah and he's saying that, that you, referring to the Messiah, Messiah, you are a priest forever 
after the order of Melchizedek. So here, again, this guy named, his name shows up in the Messianic Psalm. He's talking about being installed by God as king priest after the manner of Melchizedek. This Messiah is. Right? And that Messiah is Jesus, Christ, Jesus the Messiah. And David, under the inspiration, he was inspired to write this. Even though he may not have fully understood all the implications, but then the Messiah, or the Christ, will be this king priest forever in the manner after Melchizedek. <coughs> Zechariah, uh, it's like a, uh, like a not well-known book in the Old Testament. Still, it's, it's the word of God in Zechariah. Chapter 6, uh, verses 12 and 13, it's in NIV, says this. Tell, him this. tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch. Once again, it's referring to the Messiah, right? And he will branch out from his place and build a temple of the Lord. It is he who will build a temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne, and there will be harmony between the two. This is Zechariah. It's talking about the Messiah. Once again, the anointed one, the chosen one will come, and there will be harmony, meaning there is, he's going to assume both functions, both offices of king and priest, something that no other human being in Israel was able to do. Or God never called anyone to, to as great as David or all these other prophets or all these other priests were. They were never called to assume both offices. But then when the Messiah comes, he will assume both functions. All right? So Melchizedek, uh, in the, uh, so uh, that's what the, the significance of Melchizedek. So the Old Testament talks about that. What about the New Testament? That was Old Testament. Well, uh, I didn't have the thing because it's a little long, but um, you know, Hebrews chapter 6, uh, this is uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, uh, through verse uh, chapter 7, 4, it says this. Um, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham uh, returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham uh, apportioned the tenth, a part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having uh, neither beginning of days or end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. So even in this Hebrews, the Old Testament, they understood the significance of this king-priest Melchizedek because the Melchizedek foreshadowed what Christ was going to be, that he was an anointed prophet, priest, king for us. That Melchizedek blessed Abraham 
is understood by the author of Hebrews to indicate that Melchizedek was definitely greater than Abraham, right? For him to offer the tenth. And so, uh, <clears throat> so Abraham's gift to Melchizedek, it reflected his high regard uh, for Melchizedek as a priest of the true God. But you guys still with me? I know this is like really uh, heavy content. So that, that's, that's the significance of this passage. So instead of just kind of, oh, like, you know, Melchizedek, okay, he's just another like random king that comes, shows up in Jerusalem. No, it's not. This encounter was not a simple average encounter. So then my, uh, the other point, my second point is the gospel implication. All right, so this, it, okay, you told me that it is kind of like an important encounter so what is the implication, the gospel implication? So as I explained to you earlier, Melchizedek, king of righteousness, is a type of Christ, our heavenly high priest. And that's where we can find the, the significance and the implication that as a priest, that Jesus Christ has stood in our place and received the judgment of God reserved for each and every one of us. That he offered himself as a substitute sacrifice so that God's justice would be satisfied. And he intercedes even at this moment for each and every one of us. Even at this moment, he will be just praying, interceding for our behalf. He will be saying, Father, I am praying for Kyung. Father, I am praying for Daniel. Father, I am praying for Jeff. Father, I am interceding on behalf of John. So so on and so forth. That even at this moment, as our high priest eternal, that Christ is praying for each and every one of us. And as a king of righteousness, Jesus Christ provides the righteousness that we need before God. Right? Scripture tells us that no one is righteous. No, not one of us here can stand before God and say, God, look at me. Okay. I've done pretty good things. I've been to church. You know, I, do, I don't really do bad things that much. I'm a pretty good, decent Christian. Is it not good enough? Can I be called and regarded righteous? No. We have no righteousness on our own. Right? Not even one person. We have no righteousness to present to God and be accepted by Him. But as the King of Righteousness, Jesus Christ has come and when we put our trust in him, that it is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that covers us. And because of the righteousness of Christ that covers us, God accepts us. It's not our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ that God sees in us and he accepts us. That there is absolutely no other righteousness that we can bring to the table but that of Christ. And as king of Salem king of peace. Christ gives us peace. The peace with God. The reconciliation with God. Apart from Christ, there is no peace. I mean, you try, and I, I dare you, you try your best to have peace in your relationship. You try to have that relationship, that peace in, your relationship, in relation to your family, your spouse, your kids, your co-workers, even people at church, right? You try to have that peace on your own, apart from Christ. 
and see how long that peace will last apart from Christ. Without the peace of God, which transcends all our understanding, there cannot be any lasting and true peace that we could have with one another. When Christ came, that he has, as the, the, uh, the, the Prince of uh, Peace, that he has given us the peace that we truly need in each and every one of us in our lives. Melchizedek here met Abram. He fed him and he blessed him. And that's what Christ has done for us. So that's the significance of this passage. That it tells us what the, the relationship of Melchizedek and Abram, it parallels, it foreshadows our relationship with Christ. Just as Melchizedek fed Abram, Jesus met us when we were so blind, when we were so lost. Some, some of us, we may have grown up in the church all our lives, so we may think, oh, you know, it's just, just naturally I just became a Christian. No. Christ has come. That we were still blind and we were so lost, not knowing what is truly right, what is wrong, what is truth, and what is not truth. When we were so clueless, so hopeless and helpless, that Jesus Christ has come and given us, he, uh, he, he fed us with his truth. He fed us with his spirit that we would know, we would know that our eyes would be open to the eternal truth of God. Right. So he met us, and then he, Jesus, just as Melchizedek fed Abram, Jesus feeds us. He gives us the word, right. his truth. The word became flesh. He gives us the truth. He gives us the Holy Spirit. And he now invites us to come to him and to feed on him because he's the bread of life. Right? He's the living water. He's the eternal truth. And he invites us, come, come to me. Right? And just as uh, Melchizedek here blesses Abram, Jesus blesses us too. He leads us. He guides us. That he has given us the eternal inheritance in the kingdom to come. And what a wonderful Savior that we have and we believe. That Jesus, just as Melchizedek, Melchizedek has done, that he would bless us. That even though we don't deserve any of his eternal inheritance, by what Jesus has done for us on the cross, that now we have the eternal security, inheritance that we have God himself. And that is the biggest blessing of all time. It's not even so much the eternal life, but the fact that we can be with God, the, the fact that we can know God, that we can see God, that we can know God in a way that is that's unhindered. Even you know, as we live in this world, because we are marred and stained by sin, our understanding of God is still imperfect. Some of us may think, oh, I already know pretty much everything. I'm sorry to say, but we don't. We really do not know when that day comes, when Christ comes back and makes everything right, right, that we will see God face to face and that we will have God. And that is the biggest blessing. Some people think, oh, you know, I'm saved by Jesus and so I have eternal life, so I don't have to die. And Oh, that's great, yes. But the biggest blessing for every single believer, every single child of God is the fact that we have God. 
we, we can know God as He truly is. We only see a glimpse of what knowing God is like in this world. But we all know, we experience how frustrating it can get, how um, yeah, imperfect it is, right? We have questions. I have questions that I cannot simply answer about the ways of God. But when that day comes, we'll be with God for all eternity, and we will know God. We will love God unhindered because there will be no presence of sin, and we have no idea what it's going to feel like or just be like to be without sin, but absolutely unhindered, being in the presence, very presence of God, worshiping Him, loving Him as we were meant to love from the very beginning. That is a blessing, people. So what is the implication to know all this? Okay, so he's priest, he's prophet, he's king. So what? It brings us, it calls us, and it, the, the truth must call us, calls us to come to him in humility and say, God, I want you. I want to love you. I want to know you more. Right? Calls us to come to him in a deeper way that we will not be satisfied with simply showing up and filling up the pews on Sunday morning or just kind of just showing up on the Friday Bible study here and there, right? But to really know him, to feed on him, right? To understand what a precious God, wonderful Savior he is in our daily lives. And also the, uh, the, another implication, it's fitting for us, now that we know the truth, that we bear witness, that we let other people know about this truth. So often we talk about, oh, you know, it's just like it's my personal, you know, just religious thing, so I don't want to bother. I don't want to, like, offend anybody else. That's not true. That's not the attitude or the mindset that we are to have. We are to really just simply let other people know the hope, the truth, the blessing that we have with us. You know, for me, because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a full-time pastor, unlike Pastor Jay, like, he, he gets to, like, you know, come in daily contact with non- non-Christians, but it's not easy for me, right? And um, so I have to be very uh, intentional. And so I, you know, sometimes, you know, so what I do is, um, because I enjoy playing tennis, I make time to play tennis with uh, people outside the church. Uh, and so there's this couple guys that I uh, play tennis you know, on and off, um, and uh, both of them are non-Christians, and um, so, you know, I, you know I, when I get a chance, I would talk to, talk to them, like, individually, and there's one guy, he, he's, he's Buddhist, um, so that's how he was raised, so, you know, when, when I share uh, uh, the gospel, you know, it doesn't move him, so, because it's a completely different worldview, um, so it doesn't get to him, but that doesn't stop me. That's not going to stop me from telling him about what I believe and what is the truth and what Christ means for me. And I never consider that a failure just because he didn't come to the faith through my witness. Because it's, once again, it's not up to me to save that person. What God, God called me to do is to simply testify to his grace and just tell him about the truth and the gospel. Right? And so it is my prayer for all of us that, um, that even in our daily lives, not only do we know and just nod our head in agreement, oh yeah, Jesus is the anointed 
priest, king, and prophet. Okay, good. It's good to know. And just turn around and go back into doing the same old things week in and week out, but to really understand what it really means to us, what a blessing it is for us, and to really be a witness for Christ in our daily lives.